For the week of September 19th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 556, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jace Sperling Reich. Smoothly done. And in Birmingham, Alabama, I was in Atlanta this weekend, though. I'm Michael Giltz. What were you doing in Atlanta? Uh, doing dishes. I was visiting okay. visiting a friend's and uh, hanging out, and my friend was sort of getting ready the new fall menu for his restaurant, Petit Chou, in Atlanta. Go check it out if you're in Atlanta. It's a great place. And, uh, of course, they were short-staffed, and that invitation to come hang out while he, he cooked that night turned out to be more of an invitation to do dishes. <laughs> wow. Okay. But so I did so get, fed, I did get the... fed at the end, so it was okay. Okay. Well, was this part of the whole global uh, staffing shortage? Well, exactly. Absolutely. Yes. Wow. Okay. You know who who isn't uh, short staffed these days? Who I mean, it was for like half, a hot minute. It was uh, short staffed, and I know that you raced over to Sony uh, Television Studios to say, "Hey, I'm a free. I'm free." How about a white guy? No. Hello. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Yes, that would be said, Jeopardy. You know. You know what? We, we've got one of those. We've got uh, a white girl and a white guy. In fact, you know what? Just give the show to them for uh, until the end of the year. So Mayan Bialik and Ken Jennings are sharing hosting duties on Jeopardy. It's our weekly Jeopardy segment because what a saga this has turned out to be. I am still available. And that would be a terrible <laughs> that would be a terrible choice for them to do. I'd be learning on the job, but ultimately I would be really good. But nonetheless, they're sticking with two of the lesser candidates. I thought he was very boring when he guest hosted. I didn't think he was good at all, especially given all his opportunities to be on camera. Her, not a big fan of. They're both doing it together for the end of the year. They really want her, but she has a sitcom. If the sitcom does well and gets looks like it's going to get picked up, they're not going to be able to work around her, they don't think. So, you know, she's like, I got my sitcom. You know, I got my new show. And unless that show flops out of the gate, she will not be available full-time next year, and that means they'll probably go with maybe this mixed thing or Ken or who knows what they'll do with. But it's so, a mess. So, but here's the question. Mayim Bialik is, yeah, okay, so she does the show, but don't, they, they shoot five of these in a day, five Jeopardies in a day. So couldn't she do like a, a whole sitcom? A, a sitcom is a big job, you know? A sitcom right, is, but if she, if she, she doesn't want to do both the sitcom and the show full-time, she doesn't uh, want to. Okay. So it doesn't I, matter what you think. If she doesn't want to work 90 hours a week. Or, you know, her vac- her, bra- her brief break from a sitcom, she doesn't want to spend all of it making Jeopardy. She has a family. She has a life. They have two kids. She would like a job and occasional break. And that wouldn't be possible if you make a sitcom and do a game show. Yeah, game shows are easy. Game shows are easy. Yeah, they do them in a couple months. Then you're done for the year. Nonetheless. So you're saying we shouldn't invite her to be a guest host of Showbiz Sandbox? No. Uh, though she could, might want to sub next week because we're not going to have an episode. You're going to be out of town and we will be back in two weeks. Correct. Two weeks right here in your ears. <laughs> Is that our new slogan? In, right here I, in your I, ear. No, I just realized after I said right here, I was like, I've got nothing after that. And wow. I said, well, maybe I can make a rhyme. Here, well, well, here. I, I, well, hello, Dr. Seuss. Why don't you tell us what's going to be on the show this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we look back at last night's Emmy Awards. We'll take a look back at those. uh, And then we look forward to the Oscars. In fact, joining us is our good friend Ann Thompson of IndieWire and Thompson on Hollywood to talk about Telluride, Toronto, and what movies have Tinseltown excited. Because we're not just 
asking her, hey, what do you think of Telluride? I mean, are there any good bed and breakfasts there? What about Toronto? Where should we, we where should we dine? No, she's going to the festivals, baby. It's that time of year. The only festival she didn't go to was Venice. And frankly, I think she even covered the Emmy Awards. Anyway, James Bond and Dune, what do they have in common, Michael? I don't know. They're both uh, big would-be franchises? Well, they have absolutely nothing in common other than they both have a date with China. And I don't mean a date date. I mean, they like China, but they don't like like China. The world's biggest movie market has scheduled both Dune and James Bond, No Time to Die, for October. But not even the Ten Rings seem powerful enough to get Shang-Chi a booking. Sorry, Disney. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss the some of the week's top headlines. Not all of them, just some of them. You know, we'll tell you whether they're overhyped nonsense or, you know, you know, the, you know, you know, the, I think I may have had too much coffee by the I way. I love it when you improv. That's, that's the best. <laughs> I can't Can imagine you, why you didn't work out at second city. I really, I thought you had it. I thought say. you were going to really. Oh, uh, you can see why I'm not on Saturday night. <laughs> I can't even. No, get Saturday actually, night live. I can believe you would be on Saturday night live. Anyway, it's time for the box office. We're looking at box office around the world for the week ending September 19th. We have a link to com score in our show notes. We also pull info from everywhere else. And the number one movie around the world is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. It made $63 million this week. It's at $320 million worldwide. But more comments from the lead actor who is was born in China, but years ago talked about how his parents escaped China and people starved to death in China and not a great place. And so now China's like, goodbye. That movie is not opening up in China. That's not. Here's happen. my question. Here's my question. Was he born in China or was he born in Canada? I thought he was born in Canada. Mm. His parents were born in China. I could be wrong about that. But anyway, that said, how did Disney not do the due diligence on this one? Um, Again, this is not Disney. This is China. So Disney thinking, if anybody ever mentions the word Taiwan, do we got to search for the word Taiwan and make sure nobody ever said the country Taiwan, in which case we will not have them in our in our movies ever? No, that's not what they should do. Nor should they say, oh, I'm sorry, Richard Gere likes the Dalai Lama. Well, we won't have him in our movies. That's not the problem. The problem is not that this guy expressed an opinion about about the the tens of millions of people who starved to death during the government's great leap forward in China, which is a historical fact. That is not the problem. The problem is the Chinese government wanting to suppress anybody and everybody who ever says anything remotely bad about them. And yes, uh, the, the lead actor, uh, Simu Liu, uh, was born in Harbin, China. Oh, okay. he, has, he has Canadian citizenship, but he was born in China. And good for him. Uh, so I don't think Disney should regret it. The movie's a big hit. Of course, they wanted it to play in China, but it's playing all over Asia and the rest of the world and doing quite well. And that's great to see. Also doing quite well is Dune. That movie opened up overseas. Why? Because in North America, it's going to be day and date with HBO Max. Asinine. So stupid. They should have. They should rethink it and say, I know we told you, but it's okay. We're saying this movie should be seen on the big screen and we want, we want to do that. No, they're sticking with the plan they announced a year ago. And so Dune is opening up overseas so they can get a lot of money before the piracy begins. And it's doing great everywhere it opened. It's open to $37 million worldwide. It's trained ahead of a lot of other movies. Uh, it's doing very strongly. I think it's number one in every territory that it has opened up in. And it'll be in North America on October 22nd, day and date when it opens on HBO Max. But I will see it on an IMAX screen in the theater. You know, it's it's remarkable. Uh, 
I, I should have forwarded you the the email that Paul DeGarabedian sent me that was basically talking. He didn't say anything about piracy. He just kind of said, look, day and date doesn't work. Look at these, look at the drop-offs for these films that are only in theaters. They're much lower than the day and date movies. Especially well, that makes, Marvel. That, that makes sense. It doesn't mean that they're not making money the other way. I agree that there's no reason not to have windows, but uh, it doesn't mean that because a movie dropped in the theater that didn't get a hundred, you know, two million people to sign up for a service and thus make their money. We don't think that happened, but it's uh it's it's certainly not looking great when you look at the thing. You look at a movie, either it's day and date, theaters and home, or it's really bad. In which case it also doesn't do. Is Cry Macho doing poorly at the theater because it's day and date or is it doing poorly because it's not very good? Uh but we'll we'll get there soon. Number one is Shang-Chi, $63 million. Number two around the world is Dune at $37 million. And number three is Cloudy Mountain, a Chinese disaster flick, which opened to $19 million. Right below that is Free Guy. Oh, Free Guy should have been above it. Free Guy made $21 million last week. Uh, it's at $300 million worldwide. That also is a theatrical exclusive with really good holds. All the exhibitors would love you to look at Free Guy and say, see, see? Now, mind you, it's at $300 million. It would probably be at $600 million or more if we weren't dealing with all COVID and everything. But that's a, that's a different problem, isn't it? So well, you know what? Free what, guy, what then Cloudy Paramount Mountain, then Paw Patrol. That made $10 million and passed the $100 million mark. A success story because it only cost $25 million to make. And it's also available on Paramount+. Plus. So sometimes you can have your cake and eat it too. That's what Paramount would say. Rolanda Rodriguez from uh, Marcus Theaters, he's the CEO of Marcus Theaters, said that uh, the number one group going to see that were Latinos. Uh, 30% of the market during the opening weekend was uh, the Latino, at least in his theater chain. For, were, for Paw Patrol. For Paw Patrol, I know. It was, uh, is, there, is, there a, is there a Latin element to the movie or, or are there voice uh, actors or anything? He, he didn't know and, uh, you know, he didn't know what the reasoning was. Okay. Well, you could look up, see if there's a big voice cast that's, you know, maybe Rita Moreno does a voice. I don't know. Uh, right below Paw Patrol is Malignant, a new horror flick from James Wan. That made another $10 million. That's at $25 million worldwide. Then back to China, where Raging Fire, the Hong Kong thriller with Donnie Yen, uh, that made another $9 million. That is hitting the $200 million mark. Then Candyman. That made another $6 million this week. That's at $68 million. It is a theatrical exclusive. It will triple its budget, so it will hit $75 million worldwide. So we're going to call that a hit, even by the standards of the old school, you know, like in pre-COVID days. But for right now, that's very, very good. Now, here's another film. It's called All About My Mother. And no, it's not the Almodovar, or it's not a reissue. It's a Chinese melodrama about the relationship between a mother and a daughter, and it opened up to about $6 million. Right below that is Cry Macho, a Clint Eastwood flick. This movie, poor reviews, poor audience reaction, not testing well, not doing well. This movie would not have worked no matter how it was released, day and date, theatrical exclusive, whatever. This is a movie that probably would have fallen off screens in a few weeks. And if you had a, a relationship with exhibitors and said, look, if you don't want to play it anymore, can we put it on HBO Max? This movie would have been on HBO Max in 30 days max <laughs> so right <laughs> you below know, that I, is, uh, I, I actually <laughs> heard a a a critic say uh you know i'm gonna say about cry macho what i said about what was the last uh the mule you yeah, know the mule yeah that actually made money though so that would yes. be the argument that exhibitors would say they'd say no 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 that one made money the, and he said uh you know that that it was uh 
both of them would have been better if they were Woody Allen movies. There was like, they were okay, but both would be, I think he was joking around, but anyway. I hope so. Go ahead. So, so looking at Paw Patrol, the lead voice is Tyler Perry. Maybe he's got a big, lot of fans in the Latin community. But uh, looking down, the only person that reads uh, Hispanic or Latin Latin to me is uh, when I get to uh, Monica Alvarez, who does Carmen. But it doesn't look like it's particularly written or cast with a Latin cast. So why the Latin audience would turn out for Paw Patrol, I don't know. But hey, everybody wants to see movies. And some people want to see Gerard Butler in an action film. They got their win this week. It's Cop Shop. It made $3 million on its opening week. It's about a guy who wants to hide from an assassin who's trying to kill him. So he decides to punch a cop in the face so that he can get put into prison. He figures he'll be safe there. And then, unfortunately, the assassin decides to get arrested, too. <laughs> so he can oh. track him down. Uh, right below that is Tomorrow War, which is playing in China. That made $3 million this week, a very modest $17 million total. Jungle Cruise, that passed the $200 million mark. Stand By Me. This is a Taiwanese film. It's a young love story starring Mason Lee, the son of Ang Lee. It made $2 million this week, and I think it's at $14 million total, including its returns from Taiwan back in 2019. This is some movie that they've opened up in China because they need movies, and they don't have a lot of content right now, and they don't want to risk their own movies. Plus, we're getting close to National Day. October 1st is National Day. So while we're gone, there will be National Day, a big holiday in China with 12 big movies opening up right around then. That's why, as Sperling mentioned, the James Bond flick, No Time to Die, and Dune are opening up in China, but they're opening up for various reasons, not until mid-late October. Dune comes out October 22nd, the same day it opens up in North America. And No Time to Die, however, opens up October 29th, three weeks after its worldwide opening and a month after Taiwan and Hong Kong. So if you're in the mainland China, you can take the, you know, take the ferry over to Hong Kong and go see No Time to Die. But that's because they, you know, basically uh, they've got all the national movies, the big movies open in China on October 1st or right before that. They want them to have a couple weeks of free play where no one's going to interrupt them. It's not free play. It's free guy. But uh, (laughs) there you go. And then uh, looking down, nothing much is happening except after we fell. That's falling a little hard and fast. That's the sequel to after we collided. There will be a third movie in the trilogy. Maybe now they regret that. This one is making $14 million and it's almost about to fall off the charts. The original made about $50 million. So not a great result there. But everybody wants to play streaming, of course. And when we look at streaming, the one thing we see is Paramount Plus. We were talking about them, and I have a better breakdown of what the Paramount Plus has 12 million to 15 million subscribers. However, worldwide, Viacom has 42 million subscribers, including Showtime, Paramount Plus, the kids service Noggin, and other small niche services like that. To which I say, okay, you want to bump up Paramount Plus and make it seem more like a player? Throw them all together. Everyone with Showtime and Noggin, et cetera, will be thrilled, basically, if you can scale them up to Paramount+. Plus. Paramount+, Plus folks, will be thrilled. It'll be a win-win for everybody. And Brian Robbins, he's in charge at Paramount now. He's big on streaming, so maybe he will see. Look, there's a lot of content on Paramount+, Plus, but if we can throw in Showtime and Noggin, that's only going to make it stronger, make a much better argument. There's only going to be a few streamers. We've just seen a few surveys this week. People love streaming. They love all these options. There are too damn many of them, and they don't want to buy 17 different channels. They want just two or three apps. They're going to get HBO Max, probably. They're getting Netflix, for sure. So you got Peacock and Paramount Plus wanting to be in there. Everything you can do to make yourself more valuable, uh, do it now, because now is the time to lock those people in. But Brian Robbins, full credit, he didn't just direct 
what did you say? He directed Norbit, Norbit right? He directed yeah. Varsity Blues, which is a fun little football movie with the uh, whipped cream bikini. I know you remember that, Sperling. But also, that spun off a TV show quite successful and a good movie from uh, the actor from Dawson's Creek. He directed Good Burger. The movie version of Good Burger, that was profitable. Welcome to Good Burger, home of the Good Burger. Can I take your order, please? And he was an executive producer on One Tree Hill and a lot of other stuff. So he had a good career. It wasn't just the fail of awesomeness TV. He had, a, he had an interesting, solid career, even as a director. And as we're trying to pick up new directors, hey, if you're not going to pick up the, 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 the baton, I'll do it for you. And as we're trying to spot new directors like that, it's great to go to film festivals, isn't it, Sperling? <laughs> yes, it is. I didn't know that you wanted me to pick up any baton. I didn't know we were running a race. I'm not a we very are. good athlete. I'm a horrible athlete. You probably don't want me. I, I always got picked last for kickball. Well, you may not be a good athlete, but I know a world traveler when I see one, and that's Ann Thompson, who's just gotten back from the festival circuit, and she's going to join us today, isn't she? Yes, indeed. In fact, Ann Thompson, of course, editor-at-large over at IndieWire, and of course, founder of Thompson on Hollywood, and I think you are you the self-proclaimed awards maven, uh, Anne. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, <laughs> and so so you're probably recovering from your night out at the Emmys. All, all 600 people who got to go, I'm sure. Uh, I didn't go. I, I didn't go. I watched it on TV, which is the luxury. Uh, uh, I, I prefer it that way. Uh, what a weird show. <laughs> did you re- did you regret watching it on TV? Yeah, I guess so. It it went the way everybody expected it to go, but at the same time, for no actors of color to be in the major categories as winners was kind of amazing after there were so many nominated and so many in the room. Yes. Know? Yeah. And uh, now, it's it kind of, it kind of, there were a lot of white people going up and accepting their awards. Well, I know that uh, we're here to talk about Telluride in Toronto, but let me ask you this. As somebody who follows awards, I looked at the uh, at the, the winners for writing, and I guess it was Hacks, and directing was Hacks. And I thought, wait a second, how did Hacks come out of nowhere to beat Ted Lasso? And then I realized, oh, because Ted Lasso was nominated four times in that category against Hacks. Do you think that was a vote split, or was it just, no, Hacks was really good? No, I think I think I think Ted Lasso was probably ahead, and and there is a lot of vote splitting that goes on in those situations, which explains a lot. Like um, there are a couple places where I was like, oh, that's why that one, because the others canceled them each other out. And a lot of times, uh, before we jump into the movies, you know, uh, the Emmys are very boring. If you like the Mary Tyler Moore show, you're giving it all the supporting actors as well. The reason it hasn't looked so lockstep and silly in the last few years is because we have this new era where shows are on and then they're off for a year or two. So we would have had repeats of, say, Maisel and other shows if they'd been available. The, you know, the, the, the Game of Thrones is gone or a show is off like Succession. It's off for you. So it looks really smart. Look at that. We've had three new comedies in a row or three new dramas in a row now. But that's just because the other stuff isn't available. Wait till Succession comes back. So Emmy's just as lockstep and boring as ever. If they like Ted Lasso, they give it to everybody on the show. They like The Crown, they give it to everyone on the show. They can't seem to split up the votes the way award ceremonies do at Telluride in Toronto and elsewhere. And if you have the uh, voting open to all 20,000 members, as they do now, it's it's a popularity contest. There's no other way to look at it. And so the biggest show clearly is The Crown. Uh, yeah, mean, well, I guess I've clearly. loved The Crown for years. I've been rooting for it. I've been wanting it to win. But at the same time, you, you kind of have to go, all right, that's, that's because everybody watched it over the pandemic. 
That's true, but not everybody got to go to Telluride. I would love to go to Venice just to see Venice. I've never been to the city. I certainly wouldn't mind going to the festival. But I think if there's one I'm jealous about other than Cannes that I haven't been to yet is Telluride. Is that like your favorite fest at the moment or is Toronto just a lot more efficient? No, no, let me, I am a lucky, lucky, lucky camper. I did get to go to Cannes this year. You're on the French Riviera. Come on. (laughs) There's nothing not to like about Cannes. Um, And it's, it was a pleasure and it was a joy uh, to be there uh, in a very small version of, of the, of the festival. And Telluride though felt like the old Telluride. There were, there were less, uh, uh, audiences. Um, they were at 75% capacity, um, which made it more pleasant. It meant you got into everything. Uh, you weren't waiting in line for hours, you know, hoping to get a ticket. Um, it was really beautiful weather, really people were so grateful, so happy to see each other, lots of hugging. Um, you know, uh, it was, it it was, there was PCR testing for various, uh, dinners and so on. Um, it was lovely. And, 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 um, here's the thing for you guys who, who track this business. It's so important to be confident that you have witnessed how a movie plays. This may seem very elemental to everything, but this is what it's about. We get to see where, you know, a, a, an audience responds and where they don't. And and so we know Belfast is going to be a big contender. And we know um, King Richard is going to be a big contender. That's why they sent it there. And and it might have gone to tell you to Toronto in another universe. Toronto wasn't what it was supp- supposed to be it, 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 this year. It, it it just got sort of bad uh, COVID karma uh, over the past two years. It's not their fault. It's just the way the, the whole thing played out in terms of timing. Uh, all the people made their plans, not knowing if Toronto was going to be open or not. And they assumed it wouldn't be because, you know, Canada had such strict uh, lockdown measures, and I think around June they kind of looked and said, "Yeah, even if they come out of it, they could go back." In. You know, there's so such a big question mark with Toronto. Whenever you're going to another country, you're you're yeah. you're you're at the mercy of of how these the vagaries of the laws change at any given I, time. Regulations. I think the only yeah, and I think the only reason two things happened, one, that Venice was so big this year is because they did it last year. And I think the only reason Cannes was held this year is because Venice was held last year. And I think that the the organizers of Cannes thought, you know what's going to happen? Everything will be cleared up in September. Venice will go again. They'll have two years in a row. And if we don't do anything again, it'll just look bad. We have to do something this year. And so they didn't I, I agree with you. I agree with you. And, and, and I, and, and you also, I just have to hand it to, to these people with Terry Fremo or, or Julie Hunsinger. You just get this sense of these people sort of willing these, these festivals into, uh, into existence and making do with not the ideal uh, scenarios and not the best people they could get and et cetera, not all the films they wanted. Um, they just had to settle for what they could get and, and, and make it the best that they could. And they did. It was, it was wonderful both times. Well, as you said in your piece on IndieWire, which is headlined, The Oscar Race Gets Clearer After the Toronto International Film Festival. They can go to IndieWire and find it there under News and Festivals. There's Ann Thompson. Uh, you talk a lot about the audience popularity and how that's what the Oscars is. It's not a critical race. It doesn't matter if Belfast got some critics saying, well, it's a little sentimental. 
And that's okay. Sentimental works with Oscar voters, doesn't it? But it absolutely have, does. We have Belfast, which is Kenneth Branagh's childhood memory, a piece a la Hope and Glory, perhaps, like John Borman. We have King Richard, which is about Will Smith playing the father of Venus and Serena Williams, uh, coaching them and being very uh, eclectic in how he approached their careers from a very young age when other people thought he was crazy. And then we have a movie I'm very excited about to hear what you thought and how it played with audiences. And that's a new telling of Cyrano. I am all right. Cyrano is one of those movies where um, either you're in or you're out. You know, it's your. It it may or not may not be your cup of tea. Okay. It it reminded me. The trailer reminded me of 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 a Knight's Tale, where it was like, oh wait. uh, you know, but no, again, it's, a, it it's, a, it's a theater piece to begin with, right? So, so uh, Joe Wright, the director, went to see his wife Haley Bennett in this show of Cyrano, this stage play musical with uh, Peter Dinklage playing uh, the title role. And he loved it so much that he decided, uh, and again, this is sort of a post-woman in the window, post-pandemic, you know, whatever crisis he was going through, he decided to, to make this movie. And it's wonderful if you love opulent costumes. It's shot in a beautiful Sicil- Sicilian village, you know, medieval village, walled village, uh, using all the, the locations and everything. It's got incredible costumes. It's got incredible action pieces and choreography and musical numbers and and peter dinklage is fantastic and it works it works for this diminutive man to be playing the outsider who doesn't think he's worthy and and all of the insecurities that he has and it's a real romantic on your sleeve that sounds like oscar bait that sounds like oscar bait to me actors will love it Actors will love it, but it is Joe Wright. It, it you. I happen to love Joe Wright. I always love Joe Wright, even when he's weird, uh, even when it's Anna Karenina or something. This is more like that. It's more like Anna Karenina. It's more. Um, it 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 leans into the theatrical kind of uh, stylized artificiality. How did it play with audiences? That's why I can say with confidence that it played to some and not others. Could have been even and how was split, the music? Even. The I'm music a big is fan really good. National. Yeah, I'm no, a big fan. It, of I loved it. There's one scene at the end where I was just weeping uh, with with the singing of one particular song. It it's um it's really beautiful. That's I know that the the craft people are going to be singing the sets and and every you know the people who understand how to make movies, people who would appreciate a movie like Chicago. Right, as which is a best picture winner, I think they're going to all go for Cyrano. But there are going to be lots of. Uh, this is an art film. This is not uh, right. uh, for the masses. But, but with with Atonement and Darkest Hour, this isn't doesn't play as broadly as those two because Oscar no. loved Atonement and Darkest Hour. Okay. No, this is more like Anna Karen. <laughs> what, what about uh, King Richard? This is about the uh, Williams sisters, the tennis players, yeah, and uh, stars. But it's about their father, really. Right. I mean, it's that's a great part. Such a great part for Will Smith. He is uh, a character. Uh, he's uh, you can't see me. He's a character with quotes. You know, he's a, he's a he's a type of 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 irascible, uh, forceful, uh, never Driven. say never. Yes, and he's so ambitious and so so completely on the mission. You know, for he's going to get his two girls 
through all the barriers that, that are facing them and they're going to become tennis champions and he's not going to play by the rules. And he's driving all these sort of entitled white people crazy because they do recognize that he's right. These are extraordinary tennis players and they, they have to go along with him. It's, it's such a good movie. And Ronaldo Marcus Green, the director who was discovered at, out of Sundance uh, with the movie Monsters and Men uh, by uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, uh, Will Smith's partner, they, he he's he did it, he brings a certain authenticity and grit to the story. It's a set in Compton, and you believe it. You believe it. It's not a fakey, glossy Hollywood version of the story. And it's and he's not a hero, he, pure and true. He's he's a bit of an anti-hero, right? Because he's he's got problems. Cool. His marriage didn't survive. <laughs> well, no, no, certainly not. And for reasons that are not good. Yes. From and, what yeah, I've there's heard. reasons why Brandy was not happy with him. It's and she's really good too. Um, now I'm going to have to come up with her name. Anjane Ellis, I think mm-hmm. her name. she was up for an Emmy last night too, I think. Well, you do. Do you think this is the year that Will Smith kind of uh, wins his Oscar? Yes. It could happen. I think Dinklage could could get nominated also, um, and I think that Benedict Cumberbatch could be having his year with Power of the Dog. He's amazing in Power of the Dog, and it's a that's something that Oscar voters will respond to because a they respect him already as a really good, solid British thespian, but they also re- respect what he turns himself into uh, a, a Montana rancher. Uh, you know, does he uh, who has to be this sort of action tough uh, horse riding. Um, calf uh ballsy what, what do they do they they uh, thank you uh you know he's doing all that rough and tumble stuff and then and then he's also you know revealing this sort of pale underbelly uh of sensitivity um as as a man who uh who's who's sort of attracted to uh another man I, I is, saw that in the trailer. <laughs> this is yeah. The Power of the Dog by Jane Campion. This movie doesn't look like an audience pleaser. I'm very interested to see it, but did it play for audiences? Here's the thing. It was a runner-up in Toronto for the People's Choice Award. That's that what you said in your story. Yeah. with audiences. And I was so glad to see that because it's an int- you could see that Jane Campion is this sort of formidable intellect. I could see her winning Best Director, hands down, right now. Oh, wow. That's, um, that's interesting. Seriously, that that I, I I could see. It's going to get nominated. It's got the best reviews. The critics are going to go be all over it at the end of the year. It has all the craft stuff, the acting stuff, the writing and the directing and the the the, the score, uh, which is by um, Johnny Greenwood. And Spencer is by Johnny Greenwood, and I suspect Soggy Bottom is also by Johnny Greenwood. That we're not Soggy Bottom. Licorice Pizza, the the PTA coming up, but. Um, so he's going to be competing with himself. But uh, I think I think I would look at the here's the thing. Uh, Power of the Dog doesn't have what Nomadland had, which was emotion. Right. Emotion is huge with all these movies. The King's Speech moved people. Slumdog Millionaire moved people. Belfast moves people, right? Yes, that's that's what it has. And so does King Richard. Um, so this one doesn't move people in the same way, uh, but it isn't just an intellectual exercise. It's about something the way parasite was about something. It's about toxic masculinity. 
And some movies go to festivals and they don't succeed as well as they would have liked. Certainly the eyes of Tammy Faye entered as perhaps an Oscar hopeful and a, and a commercial, you know, left field hit. And it's left perhaps as just a showcase for Jessica Chastain. That seems to be the takeaway. Is that your impression? Yes. And I think there's plenty of examples of movies that, you know, from from uh, Renee Zellweger and Judy uh, to Bette Midler and the Rose to any number of examples of movies that got middling reviews uh, were, were, you know, and, and managed to, to score a, a Best Actress nomination or win anyway. She's so bravura. So she's doing this brilliant comedy slash tragedy turn. It's just amazing what she's doing. I have to think the actors, if they see it, here's the danger. Um, as I said in the piece, the, the danger is that the critics would cause people to avoid it, which I hope is not the case. Well, what about uh, Spencer? Because this is, uh, you know, is, is this Kristen Stewart's year? Is she going to... Chili. Uh, chili? I don't... Chili. Isn't it a little chilly? It looks like chilly. A- no, the no, movie, the movie. The movie, it's, uh, here's what it is. It's, it's Pablo Lorraine who, who, who made Jackie with, uh, and Natalie Portman got nominated off of, off of that film. It is a, a similar immersion in a, mo- in a woman's point of view, uh, very surreal. It's the last weekend, holiday weekend, um, with, with the Royal family. And she's, she's losing her mind because she's about to, to split and, and she, she doesn't, you know, know what to do. I think you're so taken with her that you're going to go for her as a best actress candidate, but the movie, uh, isn't as, as accessible, um, to a mainstream audience, uh, as it could be. I, I love the movie. I, I think critics love the movie. They're going to be all over the movie. Art house, art house hit. Well, there were three, there were three films that played at Toronto that I didn't, uh, that I would love to hear about. Cause uh, I like the talent. They're not Oscar hopefuls, but Terrence Davies, one of my favorite directors. He had a movie about Ben, about Siegfried Sassoon, a poet who died in world war one spoiler. Uh, and that's called Benediction. And Celine Siama, who did Portrait of a Lady on Fire, she had a new movie. And The Humans, based on the Tony-winning play. All those movies, to me, look like potential best-of-the-year movies, at least for me, if not Oscar. Did you catch any of them, and what did you I think? did. The Celine, uh, the, the, the Siama was fantastic. I oh, loved great. it. Great. I highly recommend What's it called? Petite, Petite Maman? Petite Maman. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. it's it's wonderful, um, and and she's just a great director. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a it's a, it's a strong strong uh, entry. I thought it might be the French entry because I don't know that they're going to go with Titan because Titan <laughs> is just not Crazy. necessarily uh, a soft lob down the middle for Academy voters. It's <laughs> no, as deserving as it is. Um, uh, so I would, uh, and it did win the Midnight Madness uh, thing in, in Toronto, which means it's playing for audiences. That's not a, a question. It's going to play for audiences for sure, um, but not necessarily <laughs> Academy audiences. But then there was another movie that won um, uh, something, another prize uh, in Venice, I think, that could be could be the the French, French winner contender. Mm-hmm. Humans, I missed. Can't wait to see it. And uh, Benediction was excellent. The Terrence Davies, very oh, bizarre, a little bit uh, small and weird, and 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 touching. Um, not not a, a, our film. Totally beautiful, oh, beautiful oh, film. That's all he ever makes. Well, you went, to t- you went to physically went to Telluride this year, as you mentioned. There were there was lots of hugging, but Toronto. I just assumed you would go. But of course, then it dawned on me after you got back to me and said, "No, no, no I'm sitting here on my couch uh, watching, you know, the screeners." 
I thought, well, yeah, of course, because getting in and out of the country is not going to be easy. Some of the screeners weren't available, though. And so you had to, that's why I haven't seen, I saw Dune at a screening here. And the Warner Brothers lot, and it's great. It's was fantastic. it IMAX? Was it an IMAX screen? It wasn't. It was the, but it was the Ross Theater, so it's the best theater in town. You know, just the best sound, the best everything. It was amazing. Have you read the book? Do you like the book? I read the book years ago, and mm-hmm. I loved it. And cool. I thought the, the the David Lynch movie was terrible. <laughs> um, so, so this movie is a vast improvement, and I am a Denis Villeneuve fan, and I think this is a commercial movie. I think this is a widely, you know, it's got the sort of Luke Skywalker hero journey. It's got the young guy who has to turn into a warrior. It's got a great mother-son sort of Shakespearean relationship. Um, It's got Zendaya. Chalamet carries it. She's really going to be in the second one, assuming they ever shoot it. Well, it's playing well commercially, so it might. At Venice, I hope so. the, the, the top winner was the Golden Line was for Happening, the Happening. That's the abortion That's movie. That's the French correct? one. That's, That's the French the movie. Yeah. That will probably be their Oscar nominee, yeah, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, and well, it'll, I, it'll score big in Texas. Yeah, I can already see theaters selling out uh, with people who oh, want no, to it looks, like, it looks very good. The $10,000, no, I'm in Texas, the $10,000 reward for. <laughs> oh. I saw somebody. <laughs> it's not a documentary, people. Not a documentary. So are you feeling like this year is a good year? Are you feeling like it's shaping up? It looks like a lot of promising stuff. Yes, just like yes, and there's year. lots of stuff we haven't seen yet. I mean, Netflix is rolling out this enormous slate. They've got we've got the uh, tick tick boom still to come, which which uh, I'm sort of excited about. Oh well, if you have to be into musicals. I mean, the other I film that played in Toronto that didn't play was Dear Evan Hansen. No, I'm sort of curious to see what happens to that poor thing. Um, the uh, the uh, I can't wait to see the Bond, right? Oh, yeah, I haven't yeah. seen that yet. Um, the French Dispatch, by the way, which I was disappointed by in Cannes, and the critics liked it a lot. It did not play that well in Telluride. Mm-hmm. That's the great thing about Telluride. You're walking around. What did you think? What did you think? What did you think? People were disappointed by it. It didn't oh, play oh. for them. Farhadi, a hero, played very well, as I thought it would. That's a very, very strong movie. Red, uh, Red Rocket, predictably, the, the Sean Baker movie that was at, at Cannes, uh, played like Cyrano, in and out. Some people walked out, loved some it. people loved it, thought it was the best thing they'd ever seen. So it's all that's not an academy friendly movie either. No. That's sort of like Hustlers or something. It well, has that's a New York, New York CD. or indie. Yeah, right. Yeah, CD. Yes, it's going to be it's going to be big. Um, uh, Last night in Soho played in Toronto. Uh, I got to see a screening. Edgar Wright, really fun. Great, yeah. great genre mash, stylized, 60s, fast, scary, great character piece. I think audiences are going to love that one. And um, you're headed now to the New York Film Festival. So what are you looking forward to there? What are you catching up? Yeah, what, what's on your to-do so list? I have to catch up, obviously, with the tragedy of Macbeth, which is opening night. And then there's um, Parallel Mothers, the Almodovar that was oh, in Venice. Yeah. And it's closing night for for New York. Um, And then uh, I have a few screenings. I have to catch up with the the Drive movie that was in Cannes, the the Japanese film Ah, that I um, 
You're in the car for I saw like half half of it. And what I saw was incredibly good. I just had to run out and miss the rest of it. So I'm going to catch up with with that. There's a bunch. There's a bunch of things I'm catching up with in New York. Um, And I'm going to see the 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 opening night of the Hamptons Film Festival uh, right before I leave, which I'm excited to see first wave from Matt Heineman, the documentary filmmaker. And is there anything you want to see again? What What are the ones that you're like, I really want to see this twice? Just because you want to make up your mind or you're just excited to see it twice? I want to see for sure uh, Power of the Dog again, because one of the great things about that movie is that it's one of those movies that plays out as you go and you're going, ah, oh, la-di-da. And then you get to the end and you go, ooh, oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> and you go back, you have to go back and see all the clues that were dropped. They're all there. And I really want to, I want to go back and experience that because uh, it's, it's that tightly, intricately, beautifully wound. And, and the name of the, the Japanese film you're referring to is called Drive My Car. Drive My Car. Thank you. Yes, and it's a three-hour movie, and yeah, that's what happened. (laughs) 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 That's what happened. I I saw the Hand of God, uh, the Sorrentino, which is a great movie. This is a Netflix film. It's another uh, post-Roma filmmaker telling a personal story. It 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 could be on a double bill with Belfast, or a triple bill with Roma and Belfast. We and didn't talk did about a, Belfast. So we did. Co- we did indeed. Okay. All right. She said it I plays mean, well with audiences. A little sentimental. Critics didn't love it. But it's black and white. If you period. know Kenneth Branagh, you know that he's a really good director who's done big commercial movies with big uh, budgets. So he had to come down to, to a smaller, more intimate frame here. But he uh, knows how to do that. And he does these elaborate setups and and sets up a, a a whole motif uh you'll you have to see it but but it's a family all these great actors but it's also uh the setting of 1969 belfast it's beautifully done really really beautifully done and if you did a film of my childhood you'd have a scene where the, oh, there's michael reading a book uh, there's michael <laughs> watch, watching tv oh there's, there's michael seeing a movie book tv book I don't think it's going to work. I'm, I'm a little bit like you. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's all it was. Cut to 20 years old in the middle of college reading a book. You know. maybe, maybe there are a couple of scenes riding a bike in the park. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And then I go, oh, I'm or gay. going then, to the beach. I said, I'm reading a book and I go, I'm gay. And then I'm reading a book. You know. So, <laughs> so nothing changed, really. That I'm was still the climax. Books. Then, yeah. <laughs> I'm still reading a book. It's just by Edmund White now. That's all. That's the only difference. So, so here's a question because, and, and I guess then we should, I, I know you're running off to New York. Um, so last night, we had the primetime Emmys, even though, frankly, it doesn't really matter that they're primetime because all of it was streaming. So yeah, who cares when these things are on? The on-demand Emmys. Yeah, and and it was all all streaming all the time. And I thought that Ted Lasso would win everything, and then that would be the story, and that Apple TV, after two years, would be the big story, despite the fact that Netflix finally won Best Drama after spending hundreds of millions of dollars to do it. Is this the year that a streamer breaks through at the Oscars? Uh-huh. It could be. Sure. If, so the power of the dog is is a Netflix for sure, uh, strong Netflix play. I still have to see Tick Tick Boom to see mm. if that's going to be another one. We haven't seen the Adam McKay. Don't look up. 
with this right. uh, that looks very comedic to me with with Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence and everybody worrying that a comet's gonna hit the earth um uh I don't I don't know about that one um but there's some late uh, arrivals. We're going to see West Side Story eventually uh, from Spielberg. The trailer looks great. Um, and uh, I was a little disappointed by the Mike Mills, Come On, Come On from A24. Um, but but as far as Netflix and Amazon and Netflix both have strong contenders, a, a hero is, is Amazon. So that's a good contender for best international film. Definitely. Assuming Aram puts it up. And maybe even director. You could see some of the foreign directors getting getting in there too, like Sorrentino, maybe. Um, I, I think the, the Sorrentino is sort of a classic um, kind of uh, Italian uh, coming-of-age story. Really beautiful. Really lovely. It's his well, Amarcord. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually. Good, good, good analogy. But uh, certainly, look, thank you for taking the time to, to join us and catch us up on, on all of these things. I, I guess we're getting back to normal, except for Toronto, which, I mean, New York does not have a virtual presence this year no, at all. It's all, it's, it's all, it, it, it's, it's, they, they, it wasn't for a lack of trying. Um, it's the, it's the rights holders that are all sort of saying, no way, Jose, you know, it'll be, oh. cur I'm curious to see what happens in uh, January at sundance i have to say you know I, I liked the virtual sundance because they did such a great job but what happened with with toronto is that they didn't get access to all the titles oh what okay. happens if that happens at sundance well a lot of the sundance movies they're they're nobody owns them yet so all the producers it's about the here, sellers right? then it's it's yeah. interesting they have weird ideas about what's okay to put online yeah, and, and when, I, I and get how it. and to whom. Yeah, I get it. So that, oh, that great Sundance was. I was sort of spoiled by it too, but it but it was. Um, it, it may have been a pandemic anomaly. Yeah, I mean, I frankly, somebody asked me, "Are you going to go to Sundance this year?" And I thought, "Do I have to go to Sundance this year? Can I'm I just stay the home?" Same thing. If I could stay home and do what they did last year, I would. That may be the risk they're taking. You see? Yes. Exactly. And they might go after the this year. The truth is, the Sundance is a pain in the ass on the ground. Yes. You know? It's it's a major pain. And the fact that they're they're doing it again, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that what Sundance will find is if they do it again, people like you and I would go, you know what? I like this a little bit too much. I'm going to stay home. And that they will have to say, that's it. No more. Everybody comes. Or they'll say, only first timers can do it virtually or they say know. this helps us reach more people not everybody can do it physically or financially so maybe it's not such a bad thing if you've That's earned your exactly stripes. what happened last year but i'd love to see a, a, a hybrid version of it and let all the young uh, intrepid you know uh duck boot wearing uh people slosh around the the snow and leave the rest of us at home <laughs> in our, in our rooms. all us 50 plus people yeah <laughs> we we don't want to put on a coat but uh again thank you very much for taking the time to join us and and have a great time in new york thank you my pleasure <laughs> always a pleasure thank to see you guys bye bye
Well, it's great to have Ann Thompson stop by, though. It is a little bit of, you know, jealousy. You know, oh, you went to Telluride? Oh, and to Toronto? Oh, and, you know, it's like, oh, oh and they're oh, inviting oh, you to the Warner Brothers uh, lot to see and, Dune. And you're going to go great. to New York Film Festival. Damn you, Ann Thompson. You're having you know, my one, life. One uh, festival that I did go to virtually that I think they really should, if there mm-hmm. is a festival that should do this again, it's South by Southwest, where I went to it virtually, and I saw films there. Uh, that I wouldn't have otherwise seen. Even if I went to South by Southwest, I might not have seen these films. Uh, and one of the films that I missed at South by Southwest was a film called Recovery. And uh, the, it's coming out now. Uh, however, they changed the name of it. Uh, and it's now uh, called Stop and Go. And this is a film... I, have you ever heard of Studio C? My, my kids were like, oh yeah, Studio C. I know these people. Uh, it's directed by Mallory Everton, who stars in the film, and Stephen Meek. It is about two sisters who uh, go on a cross-country, or not cross-country, but they go on a road trip during COVID to pick up their grandmother, who's in a nursing home at the start of COVID, and they keep calling the nursing home, and they're just like, oh no, she is. we've got to rescue grandma from the, you know, the the COVID outbreak at the nursing home. And it is hilarious, this movie. I mean, there are, they, they keep calling their sister who decided to, quote, take a cruise because uh, they were giving away such good deals on this cruise. Okay. <laughs> and the sisters are like, yeah, because it's a death trap. <laughs> it's just, it's so funny. Yeah, Studio C is a, sort of a family sketch comedy show. Yeah, and it started at BYU. And I guess, Mallory Everton and Whitney Call, they went off with Stephen Meek to make this movie, which they now call Stop and Go. I don't know that that's a good name for the movie. I know that Recovery probably also isn't a good name for the movie, Mm -hmm. but it's a fun 89 minutes. I can tell you, if you see this movie, you will not be sorry. And now your daughters are Mormons. No, 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 it's fine. Um, so No, uh, but you know what? They actually walked in on the middle of this film because I was watching it virtually, and they sat through the remainder of it, not having seen the first half. They were like, this is hilarious. But I, we know these people. I think they're from Studio C. There and you I go. Like, I, have no idea. I have no idea what that's from. Well, we've already talked about the Emmys quite a bit. We did just get the ratings info in. It was not the lowest rated Emmys ever. That's a win. That's a- Absolutely, pheno- like not phenomenal, but I'm astounded. I would have thought that would have been the, the worst rated Emmys ever. Well, it went up 16% to like 7 million people. So it's, it's the second lowest since you know 2018 when they hit 10 million. And that's nowhere near what Emmys usually would be. But remember, one of the big winners was The Crown, one of the most popular shows out right now. And it's been its fourth season. It finally won Best Drama. Ted Lasso, one of the hottest shows around right now. That's in its second season. It's bringing attention to Apple+. Plus. Hugely popular among men. Sports fans are watching Ted Lasso all over the place. So that movie has a ton of buzz. So the Emmys honor two of the biggest shows on right now. And that certainly helps. When Game of Thrones ends, people tune in. When The Crown finally wins, people tune in. So people are complaining. The LA Times said, too predictable, too white. That was the headline. Familiarity and caution prevail over the risky and innovative. Not so fast, I say. Certainly uh, a lack of diversity among the acting nominations. That's true in the winners. I mean, in the winners, not the nominations. But The Crown won for the first time 
Ted Lasso won for the first time. Gene Smart won for the first time. A lot of the people who won won for the first time. So this is not a night where they were doing the old and familiar. I explained one of the reasons why some of the shows they would have just lockstep, you know, picked weren't eligible. They weren't around this year. But nonetheless, Netflix won a, a, a top award for the first time. They won Best Drama and Best Limited Series with The Queen's Gambit. Apple won for the first time with Ted Lasso. HBO had a good night with Mayor of Easttown and also, uh, uh, you know, uh, last week with John Oliver winning again in variety talk show category. They also got Gene Smart a win for uh, Hacks. Women won the Comedy and Drama Directing Award for the first time in the same year. That was good to see. Some people of color won. Michael Nicole, let's not dis- let's not dismiss. She won a write. She won an Emmy award. She won for writing. That's awesome. It's like, oh sure, somebody might have won for best supporting actor, but you know, winning for writing and overseeing and creating a show—that's kind of awesome too. And well, also, it's a way of saying, look, okay, you were nominated in acting. You were nominated for. In other words, you can get like five nominations in different categories, and one way to give you the the Emmy is okay. Well, you know what? I'll vote for you in Emmy. Uh, I'll, I'll vote for you in writing, but I won't vote for you in directing because I want to give it to the Ted Lasso person or well, the Crown person. Well, it's just—it's a great win. It's an Emmy. It's not that it wasn't for you know best limited series or best drama but it was a win and any emmy is awesome and to show that women of color can succeed as writers telling their own story that's very powerful uh rupaul won for the 11th time rupaul set a record for the most wins by a person of color i'm not sure who had the record with 10 before that uh i don't know if it's i don't know who it is but uh no person of color won in the major acting awards basically everybody in the crown won and almost everybody in ted lasso won that's basically what i did those were their favorite shows and they gave it it's not good i prefer to share the love i don't think the crown was the best drama of the year not even close so i wouldn't have given it that or anything much less that but Nonetheless, uh, it's not unsurprising. If you think that's the best show, you probably think those are the best things. The worst thing, though, what was the crazy thing? What was the ridiculous win? The ridiculous win? I don't know. Uh, I don't Maybe you may not, you, that, may not, you may want a person of color to win or a show a different show to win, but the crown winning when it was so popular. I and thought even, Hamilton winning anything was yes, silly. ridiculous. Hamilton won best pre-recorded variety special, beating out Bo Burnham inside. Damn you, Hamilton! It was somehow Bo Burnham's inside was the best written, the best directed, and had the best music direction, but it was not the best special. It happens, but that's super annoying when it won everything else. And poor Amelda Staunton, great actress. Great talent. She's joining the crown for the final two seasons, seasons five and six. She will be playing Queen Elizabeth, but the pressure on that poor woman. Claire Foy won a Emmy for Best Actress playing Queen Elizabeth. Now, uh, now uh, uh, Olivia Coleman has won Best Actress for playing Queen Elizabeth, which means if Imelda Staunton doesn't win, loser. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was going to say, actually, the only... If I was an actress, I would literally be on the phone with my agent today going... What Queen Elizabeth movie or TV show can you get me into? I need to play that role because everybody that plays it wins an Oscar or an Emmy. Exactly. Poor Imelda Staunton. I think she will survive it, though. But, uh, you know, it won't be a... uh, Never mind. It's a big deal to win an Emmy. But she's already been lauded with lots of stuff, and she's a great, great actress. Well, I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to move us along into Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top 10 lines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. You may have heard me talk about that at the head of the show when I was stumbling over my words, like I just did there. Now, here's our first story. Here's my question, Michael. How much money did Warner Brothers lose when it sent an entire year of movies straight to streaming? A lot. 
Well, we we may never know the full cost, but they shelled out hundreds of millions to talent, lost hundreds of millions of potential box office, assuming the movies would be released in a magical future where everyone is going back to the movies like it's 2019. Oh, and they lost director Christopher Nolan, by the way. <laughs> Just heads Oopsie. up. Yeah, after 20 years of partnership with Warner Brothers, Nolan is taking his next film to Universal. It's a big loss to Warner Brothers in both prestige and box office. This means they don't get to make a talky $100 million movie about physicist Robert Oppenheimer and the building of the atomic bomb during World War II. So I don't know, maybe they're losing more prestige than box office, but it's got to hurt. And is this a big deal or a big whoop? I think it could be a big whoop. Will he go back to Warner Brothers after showing them? Will he not be happy with Universal or was he gone forever? Like you're dead to me. I don't know. This isn't the most commercial movie, but it's Christopher Nolan. I would be happy to spend $100 million, I guess, on him making a Robert Oppenheimer movie. That's quite a roll of the dice. Far less of a gamble to make Dunkirk or Interstellar or Tenet. Uh, Those are original movies, but I I feel much more comfortable with them. This one, though, it's Christopher Nolan. You're going to get $200 million, I think, just for momentum and from his name alone worldwide. So getting to $300 million and and pure profitability from cinema, that's a little bit harder, but not remotely out of the question. And it's a great catalog title to have. You got to feel he's going to give you a quality film. So I think that that is, you know, a reasonable bet. However, this is surprising. In a story about this, Variety says and quotes, obviously somebody from Warner Brothers quotes, I shouldn't say that, but using somebody from Warner Brothers as a source, they say that studio lost at least $15 million on Tenet. Now, Tenet cost $200 million to make, and it grossed $360 million worldwide. How do you end up losing only $50 million? I mean, they said at least, but surely they'd say at least $200 million if they meant $200 million, or at least $300. They'd give the biggest number they could because they're making the argument that Warner Brothers didn't lose big by not getting the new Christopher Nolan film. $50 million? Come on. It cost $200 million to make. It only made three hundred and sixty. That's crazy. That's way, way, you know. They way got too back. low is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, way too low. Exactly. That's, that's BS. Well, you know, what? what's really uh, newsworthy about this particular... Or, or, or studios, this is proof that studios are, oh, we never make money. Two-thirds of all movies lose money. No, they don't. You know, making $600 million worldwide would have made Tenet was a hit out of the box. But with, you know, streaming and DVD and Blu-ray and video on demand and rentals and all that stuff, they make a lot of money post-theatrical. So well, my other well, point would be, would maybe, they only, maybe they only lost $50 million. That's believable. On a flop like that, that's pretty great. Tells you how much money they make outside the theater. Well, and they would probably tell you, yeah, about that DVD and Blu-ray money. Well, that's um, not as much anymore, but now it's all on video on demand. And it's all, there's other ways people buy it digitally. They, you know, they get it, you know, other ways now, but that era has faded away, but they're still making money elsewhere. And guess what? That DVD and Blu-ray adds up just like vinyl. It's not the way it used to be, but it's still money. You know, oh, the big news here with this uh, particular deal with Christopher Nolan and Universal is how it was structured because he got first final cut, which everybody Duh. expects. Uh, and one of the uh, clauses was that people only read the screenplay in his office. That's, so anybody, which yeah, is so a little what? quirky, you know, no, it's it, not. It, I hear about that all the time. You got. Okay, I was going to say Woody Allen script. You got to Woody Allen. You got to go to his office and read it. You know, they or don't you send you the whole script. You only get your pages, yeah. but you got to go to their yeah. office to read. Yeah, this is not unusual. Kubrick, but then lots of people. Oh, Kubrick. Yeah, that was yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. 
but then uh, he also got uh, distribution approval. He is calling the shots on the. Th- he said it gets a theatrical release of at least ninety to hundred days. All they're doing is formalizing what he already had. He's putting in writing what he expected and got in the past. Because in the past, they were not releasing his movies and putting them on DVD in 60 days. That didn't happen. So now he knows he has to put it in writing. But that was something he already had in the past. But yeah, 120 days is rough. And they're going to be like, can we release this kitty movie? That's not really going to impinge on your film. But they'll, they'll work it out. But I'm sure that's stuff that he already was deeply involved in. And already no, to actually put it in writing now. Well, I mean, you have to. You, you have to. You have to now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what. But it's uh, not the demand isn't new. It's just the no. fact that they put it in the contract. Yes. Uh, speaking of contracts, uh, Fox Corp. Remember them? That mm-hmm. small little company. Uh, they're doubling down on being bad boys. Bad boys. What are they going to do now? First, <laughs> the company picked up the assets of TMZ for about fifty million dollars. I can't believe and that's so- all it's worth. That's what wow. I thought. This, I was like, $50 million. Don't you mean $150 I'm, I'm million? glad they're not worth more than that, but they're sleazy, but whatever. Yeah, they are the sleazy syndicated show and website that churns out video by stalking celebs and famous people harassing them at grocery stores, the airport, and the like to get a quick reaction shot. Uh, then it announced a reboot uh, of the long-running syndicated series Cops. They'll place that on their Fox News streaming service, Fox Nation, assuming nobody will complain about it uh, once it comes back. Uh, that makes season 33 for the Durable Reality Show, which will join similar shows for firemen and paramedics. Finally, they've signed TV personality and one-time journalist Pierce Morgan to a new worldwide deal. Morgan will host a worldwide show on the new TV channel, Talk TV. Presumably, they are not expecting him to land an interview with Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex. I can't imagine. Although that would be literally knockdown drag. That <laughs> people would pay to see. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop. It's like, sure, we'll rerun cops. We'll put cops on our street. Nobody's going to complain about Pox who watches Fox Nation. They're going to love yeah. cops. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch, they're doing God's work, really. They took a hit during the pandemic, just like everybody else. They took home pay cuts. Rupert took home only $31 million in his total compensation. And Lachlan just got $28 million. That's about a 10% pay cut from one year earlier. Maybe they should pivot to music because Universal Music CEO Lucian Grange, he made almost $60 million this year. Yeah, you know, the the thing is, what you don't understand, Michael, is when you have several different mansions, you have to keep them up. Those <laughs> things cost money, you know? That's, and That's so, true. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, speaking of things that are up, theater in London is up. It's battling back. It's led by Andrew Lloyd Webber's new musical production of Cinderella. Big shows are opening or reopening in the West End. Hits like Phantom and Les Mis are being joined by hopefuls like Back to the Future and Life of Pi. Wait a second. Did I just read that correctly? Those are two movies. How can you possibly? Uh, that'll be interesting to see how you do Back to the Future on stage. In That's a case, musical. Then you have a DeLorean moving around, you know. Anyway. Yeah. W- one thing that, that won't be coming back, by the way, over in London is the weekday matinee. That particular performance was pitched to international tourists. The only people who were actually free to go see a theater performance during the day in the middle of the week since tourists aren't anywhere in sight the matinee has been ditched for a second performance on sunday even monday and tuesday night performances are slipping out of sight is this a big deal or a big whoop 
Well, it's a big deal. It's coming back in the West End, just like it's opening back up on Broadway. A lot of shows opened up this week as well. In the U.S., thankfully in New York, they have a standard. Everybody must be vaccinated. It's great. So the theaters don't have to argue or fight or say, oh, it's the rules. We got to check. In London, everybody's sort of more on their own because you have the Boris Johnson government. So some theaters check every fifth customer for vaccine proof. Some check more often, some even less. They do sort of a spot check. They would all like an industry-wide standard. So hopefully London will get that soon, though I'm not holding my breath. It's good to see people coming back to the theater as long as they can do it safely. Hopefully we won't see any outbreaks from this. But if you're in a theater, you're vaccinated and you got your mask on, you're probably pretty good to go. If you read uh, the transcript of the Globally Speaking uh, uh, panel at CinemaCon, which is on CelluloidJunkie.com, by the way, uh, you will see that uh, they did a study, uh, the Global Cinema Federation, that, uh, and actually they stole the study, and I say that lovingly because it was a study that was being done in Brisbane, and they were trying to figure out, okay, what activity uh, emits the most saliva? And theatrical performances and and uh well, except for singing not, not except for the for audience singing. right right yeah yeah except for singing uh was the, the lowest so movie theaters was like everybody sitting in the same direction and breathing only usually with their masks on that like was hardly anything restaurants gyms crazy any, any, yeah off the charts i'm not so, going i still don't go back to my gym i do go to a restaurant um but i can't and i'm sitting I know it's all over the room, but I am pretty far away from other people where I sit. It's where I sit typically at the same place I go to. But gym, I just don't feel comfortable. Yeah, I go to the gym, but of course I wear a mask. Well, I you would know, too, I, but I, I still don't feel comfortable. Of course you wear a mask, for God's sake. You're not crazy. No, you don't well, want to die, do you? No, but uh, you know what? I don't. However, some people did, including UK dialect coach Joan Washington, who died at 74 that's right. She worked with countless actors and others, helping middle and lower class people try to sound more posh and helping actors often try to sound less posh. <laughs> so you got people in politics and television want to lose their accent. Then people in, in, in the theater, maybe they were born in an estate and they say, I want to sound like a cockney. <laughs> Her first yeah. film was Barbara Streisand's Yentl, helping the cast sound like turn of the century Ashkenazi Jews. Countless jobs follow, but her big impact was on the stage in London, especially at the National. If you went to the West End and listened to any British actors trying to talk like Americans, chances are Joan Washington was involved. She was married to actor Richard E. Grant, and her last job was coaching him for a role as a drag queen with a Sheffield accent for the movie musical Everybody's Talking About Jamie. That's very sweet. He even had a little tribute to his wife uh, once he was able to bring himself to uh, be back online. So very sad, our sympathies to Richard E. Grant and uh, somebody that every actor in London knew, Joan Washington. And everybody in America knew Norm MacDonald. Saturday Night Live star and comic stand-up comic Norm MacDonald died at the age of 61 after a years-long battle with cancer that he kept hidden even from his best friends. Like Bob Saget said, he knew something was up. He thought it might be cancer. They just didn't talk about it. That's that's a straight man. Keep your emotions tight in. Starting with a writing stint on the sitcom Roseanne, McDonald jumped to SNL, soon graduated to a five-year stint on the show, including three years anchoring the weekend update slot until he kept making jokes about OJ. And top official NBC is like, he's my friend. He's like, I don't care. And they fired him. That's what Norm McDonald always said. In fact, Conan O'Brien said, once he was fired from SNL, Conan would have him on all the time. And the guy's like, don't have Norm MacDonald on anymore. And, and O'Brien was like, take a walk. I'm having him on. I don't care what you say. And, and he had him on for nothing. Like, if you actually Google 
uh, Norm McDonald and Conan. There are times where he's on, he's got nothing to promote, nothing. He doesn't even have any jokes. At one point he was so sick. He was just like, you know what? I'm really sick. I've got the flu. The thought that you would actually go on a talk show when you have the flu and you're, like, yeah, that's now. funny. but, uh, but he, and he was like trying to tell jokes and Conan O'Brien was like, no, that one didn't work. That one didn't work. So, uh, the fever must be kicking in because <laughs> <laughs> most just, recently he played a lazy guy on the sitcom, the middle, which is a middle brow sitcom, but I liked it. It was a good cast. And he voiced a character on Seth MacFarlane's live-action sci-fi show, The Orville. It's a sci-fi show, and he did a voice of one of the characters. Uh, I have to say, the outpouring from fellow comics was overwhelming and, to me, a little shocking. Uh, it reminds me, I guess, what a tightly-knit club it is where everyone knows everyone, especially the white guys. In his, you know, I just was like, really? Norm MacDonald? You, you would have thought Gandhi had died. But God bless him. Clearly, everybody who knew him liked him, you know. Uh, I went back and looked at some of the clips, and I'm like, uh, I don't know. But beloved is not too strong a word for the incredible outpouring of emotion from all the people who worked with him. In his memoir, based on a true story, McDonald wrote, Stand-up comedy is a shabby business made up of shabby fellows like me who cross the country, stay at shabby hotels, and tell jokes they no longer find funny. Well, actually, that was kind of funny. <laughs> well, what about actor A.J. Johnson? I was not as familiar with him. I guess he was in House Party on Friday. Well, you're uh, white. You're well, white. No, so, I yeah. mean, I just, you, you no, know, there white. are so many actors that where I'm like, oh, that guy. Yeah, I, I don't know, know who would, their names. You would know Ice Cube, but yeah, I'm not familiar with A.J. Johnson particularly either, though I had seen House Party on Friday. He died earlier this month at the age of 55, so he's been dead for a few weeks or days. He played the character Easy e in the original House Party. He played a thief in Friday. That was probably his biggest role. He did a parody of the rapper Easy e called Sleazy E in videos for Dr. Dre and others. And this is kind of interesting. His dad, according to Wikipedia, co-founded the Black Stuntmen's Association, which is very cool. Until then, they had stunt people dark down. So you have a white person put on blackface so they could be a stunt double for a white act. I mean, right up until recently. But uh, I didn't see anybody named Johnson involved. Not that his dad necessarily has the last name Johnson, but there was a woman named Louise Johnson. She was involved in the early days. There were like 13 men and three women in the original group of people who helped found the uh, Black, men, Black Stuntman's Association. Maybe it was his mom. I don't know, but I couldn't find any backing for that. If you know whether it was his dad or his mom or what that person's name was, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. And you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. You haven't rated our show. Rate it, damn you. Rate it. Rate it right now. But, but rate it while I tell you about Jane Powell. She died at the age of 92. She was a trooper. One of the last surviving stars of the MGM Musical Factory, if not the last, actor Jane Powell died at the age of 92, a trooper to the end. Her debut was in a film with W.C. Fields, who handed her a microphone to sing and said, here you are, my little kumquat. Apparently, he uh, just improv that and <laughs> stuck with her. For a brief period in the 40s, she was a big star in musicals like A Date with Judy, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and her best film, Royal Wedding with Fred Astaire. She had replaced Judy Garland, who had replaced uh debbie fisher debbie reynolds debbie reynolds for some reason she had to drop out non-musicals followed like the female animal and noir and the adventure film enchanted island with dana andrews they didn't quite click even with a tagline for enchanted island co-starring him that said he dared to love a cannibal princess somehow that wasn't a big hit but that didn't stop powell 
She did high-profile tours of musicals like My Fair Lady and The Sound of Music and even joined a Broadway revival replacing her friend Debbie Reynolds yet again in the musical Irene. When that dried up, she turned into TV, doing guest spots on The Love Boat and Fantasy Island and in eight episodes on Growing Pains, playing the mom of Alan Thicke, the dad on the show. And when that dried up, she toured with the group Pink Martini, a cool little group. She toured with them because they had the same hometown. And when that ended and her husband died, she moved to Connecticut full time and started appearing in community theater until the end of her life. By God, she's going to perform. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. Wait, she performed with Pink Martini? I love yes. that band. I've, I've seen them perform live. I don't remember that. Well, she didn't tour with them all the time everywhere, but she did appear with them at live at Link- in Lincoln Center and oh, in, okay. in hometown and other places. I don't know that she went all over the country with them, but she did appear with them a number of times. Uh, they had the same hometown. So, uh, you know, from breaking out as a kid, and she didn't really want to be a star. Her parents pushed her into it. They just groomed her to be a Hollywood star, and it worked. And she was not happy as a teenager in Hollywood, but from a teenager, she's biggest musicals and MGM all the way down to community theater in her 80s. That's kind of awesome. You know, I didn't want to be a star either, a big podcast star, but uh, nah, well, it, hold, here it I happened. Am. Oh my God, what can you do? And here we'll be in our 90s. Uh, yes. Movies open this week, but I couldn't get my streaming device to work. I don't understand. It's broken. Mm. All these new holograms people are watching instead of going to the movies. But uh, we told you those ways to contact us. Uh, You can uh, find that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's also where you'll find ways to subscribe to us. We're on, I found out, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Microsoft Marketplace, Google, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can find our show. And if you can't, please do write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com and let us know. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. We have a website, showbizsandbox.com. MGMT has a website. It is whoismgmt.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week he's got a new and exciting website for us. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's he who controls the spice controls the universe.com. A Dune reference. But you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com until two weeks from now. Play nice. (laughs) 